The beetle is one of those people. He thinks, I'll be able to control this guy. I'll be able to nudge him one way or other and blunt the worst of what he might be able to do. And what the beetle finds out, I think, like many of the people in that administration, is that you either get swallowed up and actively empower the worst of what's happening there, or you get kicked out or you quit. There is no controlling that. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is the poet and novelist Michael Crummy. His new novel, The Adversary, is set in a place called Mockbegger, a fictional Newfoundland village where the rivalry between two entrepreneurs escalates into violence and revenge and draws a whole town in with them. Michael Crummy, welcome to Kobo. Great to be here. We have an interesting audience at Kobo in Conversation because we have a lot of Canadians. It's our home country. After all, we're speaking from our luxurious studios in Toronto. But we also have a lot of listeners who aren't in Canada and don't necessarily know Canada. And I was thinking about that as we were getting ready for this interview. It made me think about how much shorthand we have for places that we know or we think we know. If you say Outport, Newfoundland, I've accumulated some scraps of information here and there, maybe accurate, maybe not, that I can use to knit together a picture. For the benefit of people that have no mental picture to draw on, can you describe where this story takes place? Uh, yeah, I can try anyway. Um, for people who aren't familiar with Canada, they're, they're certainly probably not familiar with Newfoundland at all. Um, and Newfoundland is the sort of furthest eastern reaches of the country. The island of Newfoundland is basically out in the middle of the North Atlantic. Uh, the capital city of St. John's is closer to Dublin than it is to Toronto. And uh, it was settled by Europeans for the first time starting in the 1500s. Uh, and that continued through the 16th, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. And they settled there for one reason and one reason only. And that was because of the abundance of codfish. So mm -hmm. every European settlement in Newfoundland was a fishing community. They were almost all tiny. They were often family-based. Uh, and they were situated uh, as far out into the ocean as they could get. So on the very edge of the coastline mm -hmm. of the island or on islands off the island. So they were incredibly isolated. Um, everybody lived and died by the fishery. Newfoundland is officially known as the rock mm -hmm. uh, by people from there and people not. Uh, and that's because that's literally what it is. All the topsoil was scraped off by glaciers. So it's incredibly difficult to grow food. The growing season is remarkably short and the weather is very inclement. So it has always been a remarkably difficult place to make a go of it. And most of those communities through the 17th, 18th, into the 19th century, very little education, almost no medical care. Um, and people lived on a knife's edge, I would say, you mm -hmm. know, with an awareness that if things went bad, they went bad very quickly. And could go bad at in any all moment. kinds of ways. At any moment, in yes. all kinds of ways, yeah. Do you have to know Newfoundland at a, 
at a certain level in order to inhabit this book as a reader? I don't think so. I mean, I hope not. Um, I think that uh, in some ways the dynamic in the adversary is kind of a universal dynamic. Mm -hmm. And that anybody who knows anything about small communities and the politics within small communities will recognize at least some of what's going on here mm -hmm. as something that's going on around them. Um, and in some ways, uh, this book in particular, uh, it takes place in Newfoundland. The characters are Newfoundlanders or Europeans who arrive in Newfoundland. And I've tried really hard to make that authentic and to, to really make that world feel real to a reader. But the concerns are really not um, specific to Newfoundland alone. You know, in many ways, for me, this book was about the world that we've been living through collectively for the last eight or ten years, you know. And so, in some ways, it was an attempt to take the worst of what's happening around us, politically, economically, and to have it writ small in this tiny community uh, a million miles from anywhere or anyone, and in the persons of these two entrepreneurs, as you called them, who absolutely despise one another. And I'm going to come to them in a moment. I, I want to talk a little bit about the town. The, yeah. the story is set in a coastal town called Mockbeggar in the, the 19th century. Turn of the 19th. Turn of the 19th, yeah. okay. And, and it never strays far from that location, but it's connected to other places that kind of live off the page in a way. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about what what life was like in a town like that? That connection between town and outports, merchants right. and fishermen. Right. Well, all fishing communities were known as outports. So, and that's still true in Newfoundland today. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there's the capital city of St. John's. If you're from St. John's, you're a townie. If you live anywhere else in Newfoundland, you're a bayman and you're from an outport. Mm -hmm. Um so Mockbeggar, in this circumstance, it's an outport, but one of the larger ones because it has its own merchants. Right. So for most of Newfoundland's European history, the economic system that people lived under was something called the truck system. And that involved uh, merchants who gave supplies uh, and equipment to fishermen on credit in the spring of the year. And the, the catch then was that the fishermen had to sell what they caught during the season back to the merchant to pay off their debt. The tricky part of it was that the merchant set the price for the supplies they gave out, mm -hmm. and they set the price for the fish that came in. And I'm sure this was a totally fair and equitable system that was <laughs> right. <laughs> worked well for everyone. Well, I mean, it was, it was, it's really interesting when you look at it because it really depended on the character of the merchant. Okay. So there were lots of communities where the merchant was a decent person and w they would cut corners or allow people um, a slack if things didn't go well. And um, But then there were lots of communities where the merchant was not a good person. And really, when your life depends on whether or not the person who owns you mm -hmm. is a good or a bad person, that's a pretty precarious setup. But right. right up until my father's generation, my father started fishing when he was nine years old with his father. And uh, my grandfather died when dad was 15 and he quit to take over 
the, the family fishery, mm -hmm. quit school. And, uh, and it was the same system. He took stuff on, on credit from the local merchant in Western Bay, went down to Labrador to fish for the season, and then he had to pay back with what he caught. Um, so that truck system, uh, right up until my lifetime, was how people lived. And a lot of Newfoundland fishermen lived their entire lives in debt mm -hmm. to the merchant. And for most families, there was almost no cash money that changed hands. It was They lived and died on credit. So it was like a kind of company store, company town, just very distributed across the coastline. That's right, right. So a, a, a town the size of Montbeger, for example, there would be tons of smaller communities around it that relied on the merchants in Montbeger. And the, the novel before this one, The Innocents, is set in a cove near Montbeger. And it involves a young brother and sister who have been orphaned um, and uh, are trying to make a go of it on their own. And their mm -hmm. only connection to the outside world is the merchant's ship that comes through twice a year from Mockbeggar with supplies. So there would have been communities up and down the shore that relied on that, those merchants to survive. I asked you about the location first because Mockbeggar is the arena that we spend our, our time in. And in the middle are these two merchants who circle around each other at the center of the book. Can you introduce us to them? Yeah. And, uh, start with the Widow Keynes. Yeah. Well, the Widow Keynes is a woman who, when the book opens, uh, arrives at a wedding dressed in men's clothes. Mm. Uh, and we quickly find out that she is one of the largest merchants in Mock Beggar. And the reason she's one of the largest merchants is because she's the widow of one of the largest merchants in Mock Beggar. So she's somebody who um, is incredibly capable, uh, quite ruthless in her business dealings, but very good at them. But because she's a woman, realized that the only way she would be able to gain any kind of power in a community like that was this quirk of English law that said, if you were the widow of a property owner, until you marry somebody else, you have the legal right to own and enjoy that property. And she has very deliberately <clears throat> made a match with a merchant, an older merchant in mm -hmm. Montbeggar, and is now uh, one of the power players in that community. And then we have Abe Strap. Right. And Abe, uh, Abe is the largest merchant in the community, but he's the largest merchant in the community solely because he inherited it directly from his father. Abe has no skills in the business world particularly. And what we learn as the book unfolds is that Abe is actually the younger brother of the Widow Kings. And that the widow was of the two children was the one who, in terms of skills and abilities, should have inherited that business. Uh, and because her father signed, signed it over lock, stock, and barrel to her ne'er-do-well brother, um, her life goal is to uh, destroy the guy, either by swallowing his business or some other more uh, visceral dispatch. You've said 
in another interview that that Strap is a is a model for that quote unquote strongman figure. Yeah. That we're seeing increasingly in the politics of the last number of years. That the kind of figure that isn't impeded by norms or laws or you know, common decent behavior. Did this novel grow out of a desire to explore that figure? Yeah, definitely. When I was doing the research for The Innocence, I read a community history of Bonavista, and a lot of a lot of what ended up in that book and a lot of what ended up in this book I stole directly from from it's called um it's by a man named Bruce Whiffen and it's called Prime Birth. Mm-hmm. Um to give him his due. And it's he just he's from Bonavista, he wanted to write a story about the history of his community. And there's fabulous stuff in there. And there was a character in there who I was fascinated by. His name was George Ryder. He was a merchant. And he was a complete bastard. Uh, he was a drunkard. He was a bully. He was a brawler. He shot and killed an Irish servant in an, in an argument. And the only repercussion he suffered from that was being made a justice of the peace sometime later. He actually recruited a group of prostitutes from the capital city of St. John's and brought them to Bonavista and set up his own brothel while he was a justice of the peace. And he had no redeeming characteristics whatsoever. And he seemed to me to personify a a certain kind of person with a will to power that we've been seeing uh, around the world uh, in the last, I mean, it does seem, it's, I mean, it's, the story has always been the same, but it does mm-hmm. seem like there's a tilt in the world right now. So, you know, you look at Bolsonaro in Brazil, or you look at the guy in the Philippines um, who was going to just murder drug dealers mm-hmm. outright. I mean, Putin was kind of the ur figure for all of these guys. Turkey, Hungary, the list goes on of people sometimes in purported democracies where they're elected and then they just start stripping away the rights that people expect to have in a democracy and they start accruing power to themselves. And they seem to me um, to be completely incapable of having real relationships with people or with institutions. Like the relationship that they have with the world is transactional. What can I get from this person? What can I get from this institution? And they're quite happy to use up either that person or that institution completely. And the George Ryder character seemed to me the complete opposite of what was best about the brother and sister and the innocence. You know, the love that they had for one another was the reason that they survived those incredibly difficult circumstances. Even when they didn't like each other very much, they wanted that other person to be well in the world. And that love between them was kind of the light in a pretty dark story. Mm -hmm. And I had this George Ryder character kind of clanking around in my head. And I was living through the world we've all been living through. And I thought I I wanted to try and write a book that was the exact opposite, a mirror image of the innocence. So the adversary starts when the innocence starts, right? The killing sickness in the first line Mm -hmm. of the adversary is the sickness that orphan kills the parents of the brother and sister and makes them orphans in the innocence. And you get this little reference. They follow on parallel lines, uh, timing-wise. Mm-hmm. You don't need to know anything about the innocence to read the adversary. You don't need to know anything about the adversary to read the innocence. But they do reflect light back and forth. 
So I had this great idea, I thought, for a book, and I just could not get started. Because because uh, a character like Ryder seemed like a bit of a dead end. Like he, I thought, okay, he's a complete reprobate. He's an asshole. But what is the story? Like, what, mm-hmm. what do I do with him? And then uh, at some point, thankfully, it occurred to me that, well, if this is meant to be a mirror image of the innocence, then there has to be a sister. And immediately I had a story. Abe and the widow are completely different characters in many ways, like in terms of how they see the world. Like Abe is an id on two legs, mm-hmm. and it's, he's all about the immediate pleasure. Uh, immediate gratification is the only thing that matters to him. The widow is much more calculating. She's much more able to look into the future and see, how do I make my way toward this thing that I want? There, there are my goals. How do I get to them? Um, they're very different in terms of how they, the kinds of things that they think are important, how they operate in the world. But they're exactly alike in this way, and that is that the only thing that interests them is accruing power to themselves. Mm-hmm. And they're willing to throw anybody under the bus to get there. It isn't a dynamic of light and dark. At it's all. a dynamic of two poles pulling and pushing against each other. Well, yeah. I mean, I thought of them as two black holes that are orbiting one another. And as the book progresses, that orbit gets tighter and tighter. Mm-hmm. And eventually one of those black holes has to swallow the other. But in the meantime, while they're orbiting one another, more and more of the universe around them gets sucked into one or the other orbit. And I was, so in, in many ways, although those are the main characters, as a writer, they didn't really interest me, right? The widow, certainly more than Abe, uh, but she's more complicated in her awfulness. But what interested me as a writer was how do people make that decision to align themselves one way? Like, well, how do they end up in that orbit? Well, and it was it was interesting to me reading it because I I also thought about it in terms of satellites and and orbits and uh, and that some people get pulled in by accident, some people align themselves you know, and mm-hmm. and pull themselves close. And Abe has. Um, you know, the people that are within his orbit. He has two fairly stereotypical henchmen, Matterface and Peter. <laughs> but he also has his his godfather and namesake, Abraham Clinch. Yeah. Uh, who is business and religion all rolled into one uh, and goes by the, the nickname The Beetle. Tell yeah. us about The Beetle. Well, The Beetle, of course, was a holdover from... From the innocents. The beetle is the guy who is on the ship that it shows up in the cove and who the youngsters rely on, really. He's the one who decides what you get, how much your fish is worth. So he's a figure with a lot of power in the innocents, but as somebody who is not uh, uncomplicated. Like he, he goes out of his way to, to give these kids just enough to survive, even when their catch doesn't quite deserve that mm-hmm. so but in this book in the adversary he is the headman of uh of strap enterprises uh, and has been working with abe strap's father for decades and 
he is uh, ideologically opposed to the widow being involved in the business in any way because she's a woman. And the fact that she's really good at men's work to him is a sign that something nefarious is going on there, mm -hmm. right? To him, as a, a religious man at that time, that seems uh, almost diabolical. So his decision to align himself with Abe, who he has no respect for whatsoever, is simply that somehow in his mind, a woman in that position is more diabolical than this completely useless, um, just drunkard, bully. And he is also one of those people. I've, I've thought this a lot about Trump, you know. Like, okay, Trump is what he is. How did all of the people who ended up signing on to that administration make peace with their place in that administration? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the talk after he was first elected was, there are going to be adults in the room. His worst instincts will be blunted by the institutions and by the people around him who are going to say, you can't do this. And the Beatle is one of those people. He thinks, I'll be able to control this guy. I'll be able to nudge him one way or other and blunt the worst of what he might be able to do. And... Uh, what the Beatle finds out, I think, like many of the people in that administration, is that you either get swallowed up and actively uh, empower the worst of what's happening there, or you get kicked out or you quit. Um, that there is no controlling that. That that insatiable black hole is going to uh, is going to swallow you up one way or the other. Widow Keynes has her own group of people around her, and they're they're very different in in type and in motivation. I, can you introduce some of some of those to us? Yeah, well, I was quite shocked to discover when I was reading this book about Bonavista that there were Quakers in Newfoundland at this time. I that was a complete shock to me, mm -hmm. and they were all centered around Bonavista, and they were quite influential. They, they were merchants in the Bonavista area. And so, uh, and because it was so unusual, I immediately had to have that. So I decided that there would be Quakers in the adversary. And, uh, and of course, that, that dynamic, of course, played right into this whole story of the widow be losing her birthright because she's a woman. And the Quakers, of course, had very odd ideas about the place of women in society at the time that the widow would have found much more amenable. And so she uh, joins the Quaker faith and sets her sights on uh, a single Quaker merchant. Um, and so she ends up being surrounded by people who, uh, whose motivations are much more uh, I would say, or less uh, transactional. You know, like her husband's reputation, some people make fun of him because he is so resolutely fair to his to people who work for him. Um, and that his sense of his duty to them 
is grows out of his faith that he owes them more than just what they catch you know that uh, there's more to a human relationship than just um what can i make from this person mm. so when the when the widow inherits that business she inherits people with that same mindset and the widow unlike abe is quite capable of making people think that she's on their side she's quite uh happy to uh give people the impression that she cares about them for more than just what she can get out of them for the widow of course that's just another tool that she has that's that ability to gain people's trust and sympathy and as the book progresses it's it's a tool that she uses relentlessly and in a way that's just that makes people say of her and it's only the women who ever really see through her in the book i think but a couple mm -hmm. of them say you know that woman would eat her own children right. but a lot of the people around her partly because their their faith in people is so ingrained in them by their religion um they're incapable of of thinking a person can be that awful well and also she she looks good by comparison when you have this kind of raging id <laughs> storming around the city absolutely yes and also that she's really good at her job mm -hmm. right that uh, as a business person she gets shit done and so even some of the quakers who have doubts about her they're willing to like turn a blind eye because she's really good at the work that she does so so there are all kinds of shadings in in people's motivations for thinking i'm just going to go along you know i'm just going to go along this might not be good but until someone proves that to me i'm just going to go along yeah. and i think a lot of the worst of the situations we end up in as a society involves all of us saying i'm just going to go along and i think that that's part of who we are and to to not be like that is a real effort certainly for me like to not just go along is completely unnatural well and i think you pull in the the other side of that trait which is just this dogged desire to keep going and you know if i think if there was any doubt this book has established that 18th and 19th century uh, uh, Port Newfoundland was not a pleasant place to you know to live. Um, <laughs> wildly difficult place to live. You know the book starts as you say with a plague, and it's not even the only plague in the uh, in the book. And so the number of things that can kill you or bring you right to the edge of death, whether it was violence or childbirth or storms, or the fish not showing up or the open sea. You know, terrible things just happening all the time and people just keeping going. You've talked about Newfoundland, especially um, on the coast, as being a place where people have very little control yeah. over their lives. Are we watching two people fighting for control in a place where control is very hard to come by? Um, I, think, I think we're watching two people fighting for control of... A particular part of that arena where uh, um, 
the only part of that arena where there is any control. And that's at the top of the moneyed class. Right. Um, and to call it the moneyed class is overstating it. Uh, even they are precarious. Even so, yeah. they're fairly precarious, yeah. But, um, I mean, I think that there's a particular uh, character to Newfoundlanders that was has been bred into us by living in those circumstances. Um, part of it is like a, a, an unbelievably dogged ability to just carry on. Mm-hmm. Um, because... Uh, Otherwise, you just didn't survive. Um, but there's also like an entire culture of uh, folk folklore and superstitions and folk cures and stuff like that that grew up like ways that you could protect yourself mm-hmm. from things that you have no control over, right? So people would, in some communities, they would pass a newborn infant through a particular tree, through the branches. And that was supposed to protect them from beriberi and like all of the worst childhood diseases because there was no other protection. Um, so there is this sense of the other world as a very, the nether world as a very real part, just as real as the ocean and the land that you lived in. Mm-hmm. And I think that that fatalism plays out in a lot of ways in Newfoundland life. You're like, I think people are fairly apathetic politically in many ways because they feel like nothing's going to change anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just sort of, sort of an acceptance of difficult circumstances because, well, that's the world you're born into. One thing that struck me as I got further into the book is how Mockbegger and the couple of towns close to it are really the whole world for the people that, that live in them. When someone goes to St. John's or you know to another village down the coast, they almost vanish off the map. Is, it, is that something that people of that time would have experienced is were you trying to kind of to evoke that feeling of there's the world we know and then everything else yeah i mean as i said a lot of these communities were unbelievably isolated um i mean an example i could give is fogo island which is an island off the northeast coast of newfoundland so more isolated even than most an island of an island an island off an island in the middle of the north atlantic there was like 11 communities on fogo island a lot of people in those communities would never have visited any of the other communities on Fogel Island. Like they would have lived and died in their own little community. Mm-hmm. So, but there's also this weird cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism because they're seaports. So as in this novel, you know, there's, there are people arriving from all over the world as well to like collect the fish in the fall of the year to take back to Europe. So it is that really strange uh, uh, collision of incredibly insular, incredibly small community that was this entire world for these people. And then these periodic incursions from the outside world, which could be very good or could be very bad, like whether that's a pandemic or a crew from Egypt come to get fish or or marauders from mm. the United States. Well, they, almost like aliens, like they've just kind of come from wherever they've come from, yeah. and 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 all very interesting because so different and so new from what you see every day. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, through the books that you've written, or the the novels at least, you've been choosing different slices of Newfoundland history. 
to expose and examine and dig into the river thieves explored the contact between early settlers and the Biotech people. Uh, wreckage jumped ahead to the Second World War. Sweetland was the, the resettlement that moved people out of those outports after the war. What pulls you towards the past as opposed to more mm. contemporary settings? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. And one I keep asking myself. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, it, in those moments of why am I doing this? Yes. Yeah. yeah well, and why this in particular? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I never wanted to be pigeonholed. Like mm. when I was starting out, I started with an historical novel, um, but that it was never my intention to keep writing historical novels. Um, uh, and, but as I keep saying now, it's getting harder and harder to be pissed off when people say I'm an historical novelist, <laughs> because really, that's all I got. It seems to be working okay. <laughs> but even a, a, a story like Sweetland, right, which is set in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. That's the second half of that book in particular feels like a world from 200 years ago. So, and I think uh, I, what I've settled on as my answer to that, I don't know if it's true or not, but I think this is probably part of the reason I keep going back there is because, uh, well, for one thing, it's not the world I knew growing up. You know, like my parents knew that world. Like the world that my dad grew up in, he, if he had been born 200 years earlier, would not have been appreciably different. Mm-hmm. Um, but my world was completely different and was unimaginable to my dad when he was growing up. But the more I spend time looking at how people lived in generations before me in Newfoundland, um, the more obvious it becomes to me that part of what the modern world does for us is it gives us a very false sense of how much we have control over in our lives. It really presents this illusion that somehow we have solved all of these questions. We have vaccines now, and we have universal health care, and, we, and uh, we figured it out. And I think it's hard not to f- think that way. I mean, something like the recent pandemic gives the lie to that and reveals just how much of a knife edge we are all living on. But when I'm writing stories set in Newfoundland, 50 years ago or 200 years ago, um, it's impossible to disguise in those communities how much of a knife edge people are living on. Just how close you are to losing everything that you have. And um, and it, it feels to me like part of why I'm writing those stories is because I think that illusion that the modern world gives us is harmful. I think it's something that that takes us away from what life really is, that doesn't allow us to engage in a really complete and honest way with what it means to be human in the world. Your previous novel, The Innocents, that we've we've touched on a fair bit, was an unusual writing experience for you. Yeah. Um, You were past deadline, you had no project on the go, your editor called and said, what's up? And then you got a draft of that novel done in just over a hundred days. Uh, I think it was a little bit longer than that, okay. but, but somewhere around there. Did you come out of that experience with a different sense of yourself as a writer? Uh, 
All I can tell you is that I did the same thing for this book. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, so when I started The Innocence, part of my feeling was I really didn't want to write that book. Right. I had discovered that story about the brother and sister in the archives maybe 15 years ago. And I knew immediately there was a story there, right? It was just a one paragraph. It was a traveling clergyman came across this brother and sister and an orphaned living alone in the cove. Sister was pregnant. And the clergyman assumed the mm. brother was the father. Sure, he was right about that. And I thought, there's a story there. And then I thought, I'm not touching that with a 15-foot pole. Like, no, thank you. Someone else can write that book. And I didn't make a note of it. I, didn't, I couldn't find that little paragraph again if my life depended on it. But I couldn't. Those kids haunted me. Um, and they haunted me because I was thinking about them in terms of my own childhood, right? Where I grew up in the 60s and 70s. We had sex education in school. My mother, mother, when I was almost 13, made me read a book called Almost 13. Uh, so I had resources. Mm -hmm. Like there were places I could turn to to answer some of the questions that were coming up. And it was still the most baffling, the most terrifying, and in some ways I would say the loneliest time in my life. And I just could not stop thinking about what was it like for those, for that brother and sister to be coming into adulthood with not only nobody around to ask questions of, but not even language. Mm -hmm. Like they couldn't have named anything that was happening to them. So when I decided I was going to take a shot at writing that, and I knew there were like just a 10,000 ways that could go badly. Mm -hmm. But when I decided to take a shot at it, I thought, I'm just going to get this thing out of me. I'm just going to do it. So for the first time ever, I wrote every single day um, without a break until I had a first draft. Um, and I don't know if it was because I was thinking of the adversary as a mirror image, but I did the exact same thing. I sat down and I wrote every single day until I had a draft. And uh, I don't recommend that uh, to, <laughs> to aspiring writers. Like it's... It, it's not a particularly um, healthy way to write a book. Okay. Um, but it does feel to me like every book has asked for a particular process. Um, and, uh, and that just seemed to work for both of these books. I think it gave a particular uh, kind of um, energy to the narrative. And with the innocence, of course, for especially. It was just two kids alone in a cove. So uh, it was a challenge to find a way to tell that story that moved. Mm -hmm. And I think doing it that fast helped. And with this book, the, with The Adversary, I think there is such a, an animus at work in the book. There's such a level of um, hatred bubbling. Mm -hmm constantly that that the speed at which was written allowed that to be kept at a high heat for for the, the length of the novel you started writing as a poet and it isn't hard to sense that discipline and economy in the writing of the adversary when you started working on your first novel way back when yeah was there was there something that made you say 
I need to work on a different scale with a different set of tools? Well, I had, uh, I mean, I started out as a poet and for a long time, that's all I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, my, my poetry had always, it always had a very strong narrative component to it. Like part of what I was doing was storytelling. And I think that was from, my father was a fantastic storyteller. Like he was just, you know, he wasn't a big reader, um, certainly not of poetry. But he was just somebody, uh, he had a repertoire, right? You could request mm -hmm. particular stories from him. And they wouldn't be told word for word, but he had figured out how that narrative worked. And it was always told in the exact same sequence mm -hmm. with the same punchline, yep. same resolution. And I think that had a huge influence on my poetry. But then I also started writing stories shortly after that. So I uh, published a book of stories before I wrote River Thieves as well. Uh, and I had never made an attempt at a novel, mostly because I'd never had an idea that I thought could be more than 12 pages okay. without boring the hell out of me, let alone a, a reader. And I can't even, I don't know why that story of the, the European interaction with the, the authors stepped forward at the time that it did as, and said, there's a novel here. But I was in my 30s. And I've been writing for a long time at that point. And I did feel ready to try something on that larger scale. I was completely wrong about that. Uh, and writing that book was one of the worst experiences of my life. Uh, I felt completely crazy while I was writing River Thieves. Um, like I just felt like I had no idea what I was doing. The book was broken and unfixable. And, um, and I only finished it because I didn't want to quit. Yeah. You know, I thought I'll finish it. It will suck. I'll never have to do it again. That's what got me through writing that book. And, um, I wasn't keen to write another after that just because the process had been so terrible. But, um, but, uh, when River Thieves came out, it did really well. And I was able to quit my day job. And I, I liked not working. And uh, so I, uh, I decided to keep at it. And yeah. every book has been different. None has been as awful as that first one. Uh, and in fact, the experience has become less awful, I think partly because I recognize that feeling crazy and feeling like the book is broken and you can't fix it. That's just part of the process. Okay. You just have to ignore it, right? It's just, uh, I mean, I, I had a... A friend of mine, Helen Humphreys, who mm -hmm. uh, at the time I was writing River Thieves, had, was writing her fifth or sixth book or something. And she said, I figured out what it's like. I figured out how to tell people what it's like to write a book. She said, it's like having really, really bad PMS that goes on for months and months and months. <laughs> and uh, and I've never had PMS, but I, I think I know what she was talking about, right? It's that feeling you have, that sense that you... Everything you think about yourself is inevitably, invariably negative, right? And it's a sense that your life is and nothing good is going to happen to you ever again. And that's, that's where I was when I was writing that book for months and months and months. And now I've learned how to uh, sublimate that. Like I just, if I start thinking that way, I just ignore it completely. Mm -hmm. Um it may possibly be true, but it's no help right. to wallow in that. Um, 
So each of the books has felt completely different in terms of how it arrives and also how it feels while I'm writing it. But, um, but The Innocence and the Adversary, they feel very much of a piece in terms of how I went about writing them and my, the feeling I had while I was writing them as well. You're writing about places that you're familiar with or places that are like places that you're familiar with, but they're transposed into the past, a completely different set of conditions. Are there echoes of those lives and those lifestyles that you've kind of pulled from history that you can see around you today as you're, as you're in those places? Uh, yes, absolutely. I wrote a, a novel called Galore. And that was my third book. And I had written a couple of books that were very specifically about particular parts of Newfoundland history. And I really didn't want to do that again. And what I decided to do in Galore was I wanted to write a book about the folklore of Newfoundland, kind of, which I kind of think of as the sort of spiritual DNA of the place. Mm -hmm. The stories that Newfoundlanders have created for themselves and that uh, sort of tell us who we are. And I've always felt like human beings have a very circular relationship to our stories, our community histories, our, you know, because um, there are stories that you'll find in Newfoundland communities that are told completely independently of one another, as if they're, they happen in this particular place. But it's the same story. Um, and, it's, and they're told because they tell us something about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so there's this weird kind of uh, snaking eating its tail thing, right? Where Newfoundland has created these stories and tell these stories. And then these stories tell us who we are as Newfoundlanders, right? This is how I understand who I am as a Newfoundlander because someone told me these stories. And that circle goes on and on. And a lot of what I, when I was doing the research for Galore, my idea was to find the most outrageous, the most outlandish stories I could possibly find and stuff them all into one book. And a lot of the best stories that I found, I didn't get from the archives. I didn't get them from community histories. I got them from talking to people. Like just, um, my wife and I have a place in Western Bay, which is where my father was born and raised. Mom and dad's best friends had retired there. And so part of going to Western Bay was spending time with John and Mary. And just listening to them talk, you know. And, you know, they were the ones who told me the story about a guy from up the shore who had died and he was about to, he was the, uh, in the church in his coffin at the front during the funeral and uh, sat up during the funeral. And he felt well enough that he walked home. And, uh, and of course, the coffin was made out of good wood, couldn't be wasted. So he made a daybed out of the wood for the coffin and he slept on that for years until he died the second time. Now, I've heard that story in every corner of Newfoundland. And that's one of those stories, I think, that tells us who we are, right? That's, it's a story about uh, a person whose story has ended. His, it's all over, there's no hope, it's just about to be put in the ground. And then there's this unlikely resurrection. And the reason Newfoundlanders keep telling that story is because that's so much a part of Newfoundlanders history. Um, and uh, I remember I had a meeting with uh, this kind of avant-garde group 
of the theater mavericks who were putting a show based on one of my stories together and it was all about uh, electricity and like uh, um, setting up the stage so that people could touch things and things would light up and stuff like that. It was just crazy stuff. And uh, and at the end of it, we were just talking about what we were working on lately. And I mentioned this crazy book that I was working on. And uh, one of the guys in the meeting said, oh, I should tell you about my sister. I thought, okay, tell me about your sister. And his sister, and he grew up in the Ghouls, which is just outside St. John's. And this is not somebody's grandparent. This is mm-hmm. a guy my age. She was born afflicted with warts, covered head to toe. Uh, his parents had taken her all kinds of doctors. Nobody was able to do anything. And his mother finally, someone gave his mother the name of a wart charmer who lived on the opposite side of the island. And his mom called this woman up and explained the situation. And the woman wanted to know uh, her na- her daughter's name and her age. And she said, I'll look after this. And uh and Tim's mom said, uh, well, can I send you some money? Or, and she said, no, no. She said, I'll look after this. And the next day, when his sister woke up, all the warts were loose in the bed sheets around her. And there wasn't a mark on her body to say they had ever been there. Tim said they had to shake them out of the bed sheets. And there was enough to fill a quart jar. And, um, and I said to Tim, uh, can I use that? <laughs> and uh, yes. and of course that's Ian Galore, and so it feels to me like that world. You know, as I said, I grew up in a completely different world than my father did. And Newfoundland today, of course, is like it's a twenty first century place, and we have the internet, and the kids are all you know doing what kids everywhere are doing mm-hmm. for good and bad. Um, but if you just scratch the paint. A little bit that all that whole world is still right there it's still really present in how people operate and how they see themselves in the world and I think that's again part of the reason why the past is such a draw for me you know because all of that there is it all of it is right there in all of its glory and as a writer it's such a gift it's so rich and so unique and so unlike anywhere else I've been in the world, you know. So people often ask me, would I consider writing a book not set in Newfoundland? And my answer always is, well, I could, but like, why would I bother? Like Newfoundland to a writer is such a, like a bottomless well. And there are other people doing that. There, there are other got people that doing it, really, yeah. And uh, so I, I don't see ever running out of stories to tell set in that place. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Michael Crummy, author of the new book, The Adversary. Find it and all the books we've spoken about at Kobo and Conversations Home on the Web, kobo.com slash conversation. Check the show notes for a link. Subscribe to catch every episode. And if you enjoyed this one, share it with an adversary of your own overwhelm them with your good taste in books. Kobo in Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.